You're listening to episode 8 of the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Now here's your host, Owen Walker. So welcome guys to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. I'm here today with one of my colleagues and friends, Mark Faulkner. Hi, Owen. Welcome, welcome. So uh, Mark is um, a fellow critical care paramedic within London um, and has a number of different hats. I got you to qualify yourself last time, but I will just do it once more, especially because today's podcast really is around medical legal aspects and just debunking some of the myths around medical legal aspects. So how, what's your involvement with the medical legal world? So I've, I mean, I think you know this because we trained together many years ago. I've been in the LS about 19 years, very similar time to you. I kind of started to get involved in some medical legal aspects when I worked for our medical director at the time um, and started doing some kind of support for our legal services in providing some clinical input on cases that were going before the coroner, cases that were going in civil claims. Um, and just starting to do that and that's developed over a number of years I for a number of years was clinical advisor to legal services within our trust and on top of that I'm a partner for the HCPC so for the regulatory body for paramedics I sit as a partner so I hear regulatory cases for the HCPC as part of the panel and I continue supporting the trust with some cases I'm actually in court tomorrow on behalf of the trust and I also do a little bit of independent work and I dislike the word expert witness because you have to remember an expert is an ex is a has-been and a spurt is a drip under pressure so you just have to be a bit careful um, but I do some work outside the trust I do some independent advice for some coroners and do some expert witness work for some coroners and I do some civil claim litigation expert witness work in particularly in reference to ambulance service scope of practice and particularly paramedic scope of practice Brilliant. so that's kind of my background yeah i've been doing that for probably now about five or six years i've probably done there was a period in my life where i think i spent longer in coroner's court than some of the coroners do <laughs> um and so well over four or five hundred attendances at inquests wow wow so what I wanted to do today, rather than draw this out to be a sort of a lengthy podcast, I really wanted to just quickly examine some of the common errors you see um, when you're supporting ambulance crews, paramedics, doctors, nurses uh, within the process, the judicial process, and then try and just debunk some of the myths because I know there is some myths out there and, and, and it'd be useful to de- debunk them. Um, so just, just really, um, really first and foremost, what would you say are some of the common both errors and maybe shortcomings that you see within, um, within sort of paramedic practice? So most of my role within London Ambulance Service has been supporting crews, giving evidence, particularly at inquests. Um, I think if we separate and we'll talk a little bit about inquests and then we can talk about civil claims in a bit, um, but particularly in relation to inquests, uh, coronial law is incredibly complex, it's quite old legislation in the UK, but it is effectively about establishing who the deceased was, how, when and where were the circumstances that brought about their death. And for any coroner listening to this, I'm sure I will have misquoted that, so 
but, but, but it's re- that's a really good point. Yeah. So it's not attribution of blame. No. It's a fact-finding Absolutely. Mission. It's not... So, so when you get a coroner's report, it's not that the coroner or indeed the family want to attribute blame or indeed the service, but they want to... They want to demystify, they want to clarify the, the, the conditions of death or the conditions of... So the coronial process is about answering some very, very specific legal questions. And they are those four questions which we went through. And that is what the coronial process is about. Um, the kind of parlance we talk about is an inquisitorial process, so about fact-finding and investigation as opposed to an adversarial process and apportioning blame. And actually, there are legal restrictions on coroners to prevent them apportioning blame and liability. So a coroner cannot find a liability in terms of criminal facts. So, and actually apportion that to an individual. So when you're supporting crews, none of us join the ambulance service wanting to go to court. None of us wanted to stand in a witness box giving evidence. That's not, not why any of us got involved in pre-hospital care in the main. Um, for some of us, it's become quite a routine part of our day-to-day job. But actually, it is hugely foreign for an ambulance crew. It's hugely foreign even for a doc, an experienced doctor to stand in a witness box and give evidence. But it is something that we're called upon to do. And certainly in terms of the coronial process we talk about, it's something we see ambulance clinicians, pre-hospital doctors, pre-hospital nurses, getting involved in more and more because there's a greater understanding both in the coroners as to the quality of evidence and the quality of evidence that the coroner can get to help them come to the conclusions that they need to from the clinicians who treated the patient pre-hospitally and a greater understanding of actually the scope of practice pre-hospitally. Having said that the coronial process is inquisitorial, when you're stood in a witness box in a coroner's court, to quote the phrase, gripping the bar, it feels very adversarial. Yeah, And of course it is. Most coroners sit in traditional courtrooms. No, they don't sit in gowns and wigs anymore, but they sit in traditional courtrooms, and it feels adversarial, particularly when you're being cross-examined by legal representation and representatives. It can feel incredibly foreign. And the families maybe there. And the family, yeah. And the family, the family have a legal right to ask questions at an inquest. Yeah. And sometimes that family will be legally represented, sometimes they won't. And the family are there, the coroner will ask you questions, the family will ask you questions. If other interested parties are there, they'll ask you questions. But you are there to help the coroner answer the questions. You are not on trial. And that's important. And that's very important to remember. And I spoke to a colleague recently, had a very stressful experience at an inquest. Um, but it's not you on trial. No one is on trial at coroner's court. It is about establishing facts. Um, so that's really important. The other thing I think is helpful for people to understand is that when a coroner examines the evidence, they have to be able to examine evidence that they can admit into evidence. It, you cannot read the free text box of your patient report form or your electronic tablet straight into evidence at coroner's court. It's written in medical shorthand, it's medical notes, it's clinicalese. It makes very little sense to a family. That's why a coroner will ask for a statement, is they want something they can then either read into evidence or it informs their evidence. And people say to me, well, if you complete a perfectly written patient report form, uh, you won't have to give evidence in coroner's court. That's rubbish. It's rubbish. The reason you'll get asked for a statement, yeah, the reason you'll get asked for a statement 
is because they want the information that is on your patient report form in a format that can be delivered in evidence. Absolutely, and that actually the family can understand. And family can understand. Because they will yeah. read that. They will read that statement as well, won't they? So I think I think you're quite quite right. And it's not. It, 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 I think a lot of people feel maybe threatened. I certainly did at one point uh, by coroner statements, but actually. Um, it's also about debunking medical phrases. Um, what I will do, either in brackets or indeed in free text, is put, say, I put a, a tube into the windpipe. Yeah. I put a tube into the windpipe, and, and we were and we were pushing air into the lungs. Yeah. And actually, because actually, what I want to do is 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 make sure that whoever's reading that, family or otherwise, know exactly what what intubation or endotracheal intubation or any other phraseology actually means so I think so I think to just recap it you're absolutely right Owen a lot of this is about turning clinical notes into layperson's evidence that can be effectively read into the coroner's evidence or if necessary somebody can speak to an evidence um, I very much would say to people a well written PRF does not stop you going to coroner's court. What a well-written PRF does is it allows you to write an informed statement when you go to coroner's court. And some inquests are very prompt, and you hear some, I get coroner's statements two, three days after I've completed the job, the coroner's writing me saying, can I have a statement around this? I have one that's appeared in my inbox this week that's about from about a year and a half ago. And I'm looking at this going, actually, I can't remember it. And you then go back to your clinical notes, and it's the clinical notes that allow you to write a statement. And that, for me, particularly in respect of ambulance practice, is so important. Your clinical notes are your defence. They're your justification of your actions. They're your record of your care. They're your contemporaneous or near contemporaneous record of your decision making. And actually, when I'm looking at something that's a year and a half old, I'm really glad I've written that continuation sheet. Absolutely. And my notes make sense. Because it's that that then allows me to draw a coroner statement together that will answer the questions. And you nailed it in terms of you need to put this in language that the coroner can understand. Um, there are coroners who are doctors. There are coroners who are nurses. The requirement now is that they do have a legal qualification going for as, But there are coroners who are duly qualified. But they're not necessarily experts in pre-hospital care. Yeah. Um, and you have to turn, and there are also coroners that are have no medical qualification. They're very experienced coroners, and some of them have got phenomenal clinical knowledge because they've been medical negligence lawyers and bits like that. Um, and have some have been coroners for a long time, so I really get. But you do have to turn what is an intraosseous infusion into something that makes sense for a family and something that can be read into evidence, and everyone doesn't go. What on earth is that? Yeah, indeed. Um, but it's your clinical notes, it's your PRF, to quote the ambulance service parlance, that defends your practice, that allows you to go back and write that statement. And it's about using that and making sure your notes are really good, that you justify your decision-making. Brilliant, Mark. Absolutely. And I suppose some of the, uh, for want of a better term, some of maybe the deficits is when... Is, is it when you see sort of those maybe written uh, off the cuff or not in, in no detail at all or really don't expand on 
on on care given, and I can, and, I, and and a year and a half later, it comes to bear that it's hard to then draw semblance of what actually happened in the moment. Or. And I think, yeah, it's exactly that. Is your clinical notes, and I think a GP once said to me, and I is that you've got to be able to recreate the consultation from the notes, and that's the same in ambulance practice. Is your patient encounter your pre-hospital encounter, you should be able to recreate that from the notes. You should be able to see Owen's decision-making. You should be able to see Mark's decision-making from that clinical note, which means you also have to be able to read it if you're still working in a system that under th- does handwriting. Indeed. Um, that there is enough within your free text, and I'm not... that you actually kind of can drill down into why that decision was made. Just because it's got a computerised tick box does not necessarily mean that somebody can understand and your rationales in it that you've actually got something that explains what's gone on. Brilliant. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all that said, um, and quite rightly, as you said, Mark, it's a factual account, not not an emotional account, not a hypothetical account uh, or conjecture. It is a factual um, recollection of... What you did, did. why you did it. Yeah. So, what you saw, what you did and why you did it. Indeed. That's what your coroner's statement is. That's what the coroner will draw inference from. Indeed, indeed. Okay, so so coming back from that, so um, so you've got, you've got the coroner's inquest, um, and then concurrently or not, um, a lot of time not, but sometimes concurrently, you may have a criminal inquest or a criminal investigation that runs bilaterally along, alongside that. Now, how, how is that different? And um, what are some of the subtleties of, of that? So most of the time in the UK, a coroner will open a journey and inquest to allow the criminal investigation to conclude. So although the inquest may be open, inquests are open fairly earlier, they're, then they're adjourned for fact-finding. What most coroners will do is that, and in most situations, and clearly I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a coroner, but they will open the inquest, the inquest will get adjourned whilst the police and the prosecuting authorities undertake the criminal investigation. Now, you have to remember that you are a often a witness of fact in that criminal investigation. You're not there as an expert witness, that's something slightly different. You're there as an evidence of fact. You treated the patient. Um, you saw what was going on, you understood. Now, you will often get asked for statements to support the criminal investigation. And the police may take a statement of you. They may want to know what you saw, what you did, why you did it, what were medical interventions, did you see injuries, what was said to you on scene, all of that. And clearly there are lots of professional guidance now out there about how you complete that and the process you do. I am very much of the view you should try and complete one statement for one clinical intervention. And I'm always minded when I'm completing a statement with the police that that needs to have enough clinical detail in it that if when the coroner looks at it they've got questions around clinical intervention that also answers the coroner's questions and the family will get answers from it so although the police may have some very specific questions around the case um, I tend to say actually I need to put some clinical detail into this um, because actually I need if you then forward this on to the coroner that the coroner's got enough information on it I'm, you do end up with cases where you have multiple authorities investigating the case and therefore 
pre-hospital clinicians are, end up being asked for multiple statements. And that causes ourselves um, some challenges. Because every time you write a statement, it will probably get written slightly differently because that's not human nature. And you then end up with Owen Walker who's written three statements for the same event. So what I would say is when you get that initial approach, make sure that statement's got enough detail in it for anything that's reasonably foreseeable in the future. And say to the police, I need to put some clinical detail in this because you'll be forwarded this on to the coroner once your investigation's concluded. Indeed, yeah. Um, so that kind of slightly one statement yeah, focus. Absolutely, and I, and I agree with that. Having attended um, homicide cases and been to the Old Bailey and had concurrent coroner statements for the same case, I either having an omission, an omission of detail or having extra detail um, with information subpoenaed from one statement to another, I think consistency is king. Uh, because like you said, uh, defense or prosecution barristers will pick up on the subtleties. And again, I, 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 it's, it'd be interesting to hear whether you think there's an attribution of blame or indeed more, I would say more so, subtlety of invalidation maybe of, 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 of witness account. Uh, but you have to maintain that consistency because I've certainly had a disparity of information which was brought to light at the Old Bailey um, with the defence with the defence um, uh, attorneys or the defence yeah. uh, lawyer and and then made me look quite foolish in front of a lot of people so it's uh, and it was just a very small subtle subtle uh, detail but actually that consistency um, is it, down to down to the absolute T is, 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 is key. I think, and there's nothing that stops you. If somebody comes back to you and says, I need you to answer some specific questions that you didn't cover, you can do that. You can write an addendum to your statement um, and answer specific questions. If somebody wants you to specifically describe something you saw and it wasn't enough to do that in an addendum to your original statement um, rather than as a separate new statement. You're writing an addendum to the statement, not a completely new statement. We've talked a bit about um, documentation. I think one of my big learnings from Coroner's Court and having spoken to a lot of ambulance crews, some of whom have gone through very challenging and difficult inquests where both the ambulance service has been criticised and the individual has been criticised, never ever forget the fundamental of care that you are the advocate of the patient. Whatever is going on on scene, you are there to advocate for your patient. They are your patient. And when you... And I think back to some of the really challenging inquests I've dealt with, often have involved multiple agencies, often deaths in care other agencies. You are the advocate of that patient. Never forget that. And that's my fundamental biggest learning from coroner's court and the coroner's processes. As a clinician on scene, your job is to advocate for that patient. You are that patient's voice on scene. And you need to make sure those around you, be that the police, be that the border agency, be that the prison service, you are advocating for that patient clinically. Yeah. So make sure if you've got a concern and you say, I want this patient to be in hospital, that you absolutely advocate for that and you don't default that judgment to others on scene who are also in uniform. Absolutely. And down to the subtleties of uh, positional asphyxia. So I actually want this patient on their back where they can breathe properly yeah. um, if, they're being, if they're being restrained or, or held down. You, you are that patient's advocate. Yeah. And where you see... And where I certainly over the last 
eight or so years of doing this work, um, I've seen ambulance crews really struggle. It's where that's been diluted and they've got caught up in um, command gradient on scene, authority gradient on scene, and defaulted to others rather than stepping away and saying, I, I am here to look after that patient clinically. Make sure you advocate for them. Make sure you're that patient's voice. If you're worried that patient's not safe to be in police custody, you need to make sure that view is expressed absolutely clearly to mm -hmm. the police and that you absolutely advocate that point. You are a team pre-hospitally, but you are the clinical advocate for that patient. And, and that, for me, is the, so fundamentally important yeah. into everything we do. Indeed, indeed. That's a, really, that's a really powerful point, actually, Mark, because I think quite sometimes in highly emotive scenes, we can absolutely. forget that actually, yeah, it's, it is the patient first. And it's not that we forget it, I suppose. It's more so that actually you get distracted with other things, especially in a way, you know, in, in, a, high, in a highly tense uh, or fractious environment where there's multiple things, multiple distractors, multiple patients even. Um, so, absolutely. And I think for me, the more challenging the scene is, and the more challenging that patient is, the more minded you have to be to advocate for that patatient mm, indeed. and this isn't e this is easy to say isn't it and very difficult to do um, and actually, if you are that relatively recent qualified paramedic, that newly qualified paramedic um, saying to whoever it happens to be on scene and actually i 'm worried about this individual clinically, I think they need to be in hospital can be quite difficult, but you've got, we've got to develop that skill set that you are that patient's advocate, you are there to look after that patient clinically, pre-hospitally, and although there may be lots of other competing things going on on scene, you need to remember that. Um, and that for me probably is my biggest take home message from inquests, and well, certainly that have been challenging, is really good documentation to support your practice, but never ever forget that you are the advocate. Yeah, indeed. I think that's powerful. Mark, I think it's absolutely powerful. Um, and just so I'd just like to wrap this up really with um, with just asking you about um, sort of clinical opinions that you've given in the past, and indeed just 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 some of the um, not necessarily the nuances, but just some of the principles you adhere to with clinical opinions, um, and just get your perspective really, Mark. Because when I when I've written maybe about fifteen clinical opinions, maybe a few more. Um, but I always err on the side of I try and put myself in their shoes, and even if even if the information isn't there, what I'll do is I'll speak to the crews, I'll get their perspective, and and actually look at everything. It's three a.m. It's the middle of winter. It's this. It's that. It's the other. And actually, really try and like you said before, be be an advocate of the crews and be an advocate and supportive in any clinical opinion because actually until you've experienced those human factors it's you you can't necessarily empathize with with crews decision making at 3am in the morning at, on a cold dark wintry night so it's it's certainly my experience is, is is trying to trying to come from a place of support for for crews when when writing opinions which will be read by families, be read by coroners, be read by any other 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 jurisdiction. Do you would you would you agree with that? I think I do. I think just clinical opinion is a very a piece of terminology worked in the ambulance service we work in, um, and effectively it's a written report reviewing what clinical care delivered. Um, 
when we talk about civil claim, we talk about the reasonable and responsible body of clinical practice. And for those of whom who can remember doing law and ethics at university, that's the Bolan Belitho tests in law, that reasonable and responsible body of clinical practice. That is not what Owen Walker would have done, it's not what Mark Faulkner would have done. It's what a reasonable responsible body of your peers with a similar level of experience and training would have done. Yeah. Um, so I should never, when I write a legal opinion or an expert report, be if the if the ambulance crew are two newly qualified paramedics, I should not be judging them to the standard of a critical care paramedic or a pre-hospital doctor. Um, and that's wrong because it is what is a reasonable, responsible body of action, and there can be two equally responsible bodies of opinion. Just because it is being done differently does not mean it is wrong. They, they, you may have two bodies of clinical practice who would have both done something slightly differently. That doesn't mean it's wrong. My, there is clinical practice that goes wrong. Mistakes are made. Where that mistake is indefensible, that there is no reasonable or responsible body of practice that would have done the same. And that doesn't mean that the crew have done it out of malice. It means a mistake has happened. Yeah. Um, if somebody's fallen off the bed because they weren't strapped into the bed, the reasonable responsible body of practice in that mean most patients will put the seatbelts on the bed. It's that simple. Um, if something indefensible has happened, we shouldn't be defending it for the sake of defending it. If some mistake has happened, a mistake has happened, and we need to actually the kind of come clean, own up to it, put our hands up to it, and say, we've mistake has happened, we need to learn from this, and we need to make sure it doesn't happen again. That doesn't mean we should be punitive with the crew. It doesn't mean that there should be immediate punishment and dismissal of the crew. It doesn't mean that they'll be struck off from whichever regulatory body they're regulated with. It means a mistake has happened, and we recognise a mistake has happened. Um, and actually, when I sit here with my HCPC hat on in slightly different terms, we kind of talk about insight. And actually, has somebody learned from what's happened, and have they taken corrective action, and is there mitigation, and are the public reassured that this won't happen again? And that's really, really powerful. It's, it's that, is your current fitness to practice impaired? And I'm kind of been trying not to mix up two different processes. I think it's that current, is your current fitness practice impaired? That's what the regulators are interested in. Um, the legal process in terms of civil claims is around negligence. Negligence is relatively complex. It does a breach of duty exist? Has that breach, oh, sorry, ha does a duty of care exist? Has, that has there been a breach in that duty of care? And then has that duty of care caused harm? And then clearly what is the financial loss of that? Um, so, you kind of have to separate the different processes in your mind. And I'm very much of the view that if a mistake has happened, we need to understand that mistake has happened. It doesn't mean somebody's done something out of malice, but it means a mistake has happened. Indeed, indeed. And I think that's a powerful distinction and, and, and a, a certainly a correct one to, 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 to make. Um, so, Mark, we're going to... Um, we're going to wrap it up there because we could actually talk about this for a long time um, and I think it's just about take-home points really for the medical legal aspects. So just reviewing the take-home points we've just discussed, um, really, um, so, so just really drill down into, into your documentation. 
Um, it's not conjecture, it's not opinion, and it's not uh, um, emotion, it's fact. And it's, it's something you can, you can use and draw on at a later date um, if, you, if you requested to. But I think the biggest point you were, you were, you were making is uh, really be the advocate for the patient. But yeah, I think absolutely you are there to advocate for the patient. I also, when I talk to new staff, talk to staff about this, I think it is always worth stepping back and having that little time out in your brain and going, what would this decision look like in the cold light of day? Yeah, And where does my decision fit with national evidence-based guidelines? If you are departing from guidelines and doing something... You just need to think, actually, what does this yeah, look like? Yeah. Um, and have I spent enough time justifying why I've departed from those guidelines in my documentation that somebody could defend this? Yeah. And remember, it is that reasonable and responsible body of practice yeah. in terms of clinical negligence. Mark, that's absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate your uh, perspectives today and your just your opinions and, and experience. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And as a summary, I think that's 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 reason, you know it's, it's massively robust just to just to encapsulate those those points um, because I think the some certainly uh, an opinion I had was that people were out to get me, um, and that's certainly not the case. If anything, it's to support. Is to support cruisers in it and to and to help them along the way, and and not feel victimised uh, in the process. But listen, thanks so much for your time today, Mark. I really appreciate it and and all your perspectives. And um, yeah, thanks for giving up your time. Thanks very much. All right, and we'll check you again on the Pre-Hospital Care podcast soon. Many thanks. This has been the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network, hosted by Owen Walker and Rich McGear, to bring unique insights to paramedics and other emergency healthcare professionals wherever you are. If you like our show, please leave us a review on iTunes and share us with a friend. Many thanks.